This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani, alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. A man who goes by the name of Dr. Q. His full name is, is Dr. Tricky. Alfredo Quinones Hinojosa, a renowned brain surgeon who's... What kind of tale of how we got there is it's a heartwarming one. It is one that will maybe resonate with one or two. But what it is, is it's a positive story at a time where there's negativity surrounding us. An illegal migrant worker in the US came over the border from Mexico to become one of the world's leading neurosurgeons. He is well known. He's done a number of TED Talks. He is a, a remarkable individual. His story, it's an unbelievable one, folks, and settle in for this. He actually wrote a book about his journey back in 2011. That was entitled Becoming Dr. Q, My Journey from Migrant Farm Worker to Brain Surgeon. So we're going to go through this kind of chronologically. And as you will hear, he's a man who knows his own story down pat. And he takes great pride in telling the world about how he became one of the world's leading brain surgeons. So first an overview, how does Dr. Q view his own story? I think my story is a story that is universal, Chris. It's the world needs to hear about poor people who have a dream. Poor people who are willing to sacrifice, are willing to work hard, are willing to go to great lengths to pursue happiness for them, for their family, for their country, for their world, obviously. And I am, I left Mexico as a very poor teenager. And uh, by the grace of God and a lot of work and a lot of help from a lot of people, I was able to get an education in the most amazing places in the United States. And now, be able to do things that I never even dreamed of, you know. So, yes, the world needs to hear. The world is so full of negative energy right now, Chris, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it breaks my heart because I know that my story is not unique. There are stories of tremendous, tremendously accomplished people that are so amazing and so inspirational, and I agree with you. I think that we need to hear more of that positive. Now, don't take me wrong. Those doesn't come without sacrifices. And I think that that is, uh, as, as I always tell people, the devil is in the details, of course. And sometimes when you tell a story, it's not like you just want to give people the positive things, but you want to give them a true recollection of events. And in my life, I've been blessed that I wrote a book, as you know, about yeah. my life. I've been blessed that my life has been put in several shows, including Hopkins, I got a Peabody Award in 2010. Now they show uh, Surgeon's Cut in, in BBC Netflix. That also, by the way, is winning tons of awards around the world. And, of course, a future feature film by Brad Pitt and his company about my life. But once again, you know, we have to concentrate on positive energy. Yeah, here, here on that front, Dr. Q. There's a bit of self-promotion going on uh, there. Massive yeah. self-promotion. I was going to allow him to do that because, as you heard there, his message is an important one. That was very much broad brushstrokes with his story. So let's delve straight into it. Where did he come from? His background, his story, and as he explains here, well, it was a tough upbringing, and he explains how he actually came to living in the U.S., I came from a very small village, 
outside of a small little town called Mexicali, Mexico, which is in the state of Baja California, which I'm talking about a farming community, no running water, dirt roads, no power, things like that. And uh, from there, a little boy that was full of energy that was was born, by the way, a scientist probably, because incidentally, we are all born scientists and we like to explore the world. And somehow my mom and dad and my grandparents from both sides of the family, even though they were very poor and uneducated people in the sense of Western civilization education, they were still very rich in culture and they were very bright and they motivated this little boy to keep exploring the world at a very young age. Eventually, I uh, went to school in a small little town to become an elementary school teacher, and none of that stuff was validated in the United States, but I had a dream, Chris. I saw my family leave in Mexico to come to the United States to work in the fields, and they would come back a certain part of the year with a little bit of money and food, Chris, food. That was it. I saw them bringing us food because we were going through a very, very harsh economic depression of the 70s. You remember 1977, 78, the world was going through a very, very difficult time. And there's this little boy right here. You know, I was born in 1968. So at the young age of 10, I was impressed to see my uncles bringing us food. So somewhere that, again, in my brain was planted this idea that one day, this little poor boy was going to make something out of his life. And that's how I began probably to pursue my own uh, dream of happiness. Eventually, as, as you know, I hopped the fence illegally, undocumented between Mexico and the United States, landed when I was uh, 19 years old in the farm fields of California, and I had to work my way up. And uh, with these hands, the very same hands that today pick some of the most complex brain tumors in the world and some of the most prominent and important people in the world were the same hands that at the time in the late 80s were picking tomatoes, cotton, cauliflower, broccoli, onions and all these produces to put on the tables of people to eat, which is, is amazing, all right? Oh. I came to pick food so I can put food on the table for my parents and my siblings and I ended up picking the food that was being put on the table of a lot of people, not just in America, but around the world. So now that I look back, I realize that I was being connected to the rest of the world, and I didn't even know it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. He was uh, the oldest and is the oldest of six children, as you heard there, born to a financially struggling family in Mexicali. He actually hopped the fence, and that is his phrase, not mine, over to the U.S. He was an illegal immigrant. He was picking food. At, what, 19, 20 years of age, there he is in California picking food, picking produce from the fields, and yet he had a dream of going to medical school and becoming a doctor. That's what he dreamt about, but dreaming is one thing. Turning that into reality is something very different indeed. I did ask him, what was the moment that Alfredo looks back on now as being the catalyst for setting off a chain of events that would lead him to becoming one of the world's leading brain surgeons? Well, Chris, I think that probably the most significant moment in my life, and it's taken me 50 years to realize, was very early on the death of my little sister. 
she was uh, six months old, and I saw how poverty, lack of uh, potable water, uh, took her life. You know, she had diarrhea, dehydration, and you know that in the developing countries, this is still the number one killer in the world for poor people. And I saw how my mother and my father suffered through the death of my little sister. And uh, it took something away from us and something very powerful. And I saw how this had a significant effect on my own father who struggled. Now I understand it, Chris. I look back and he struggled with uh, depression, you know, and this was a, a very, very significant blow on a very young couple because my mom was 19 when she had me. She was about 22 when my little sister died and my father was about 23. They were just kids, you know, and see something like that so powerful and, uh, you know, take away the life of the loved ones. It's had a significant impact. So I think as I look back, Chris, that had a significant impact. And then there were several periods in my life, you know, that kept going and going, seeing, of course, of course, poverty in Mexico and, uh, and knowing uh, that the situation was complex allowed me to dream. But I was a dreamer since I was a little boy. And then the next episode, I think that had a significant impact that allowed me to propel an education in the United States is when I was working in the fields and I had nothing. I was actually homeless when I first came to the United States. I was living on a little camper. I would live in a little car. You know, I remember a night waking up completely soaked with water because that little camper, you know, was dripping in water when it was raining and in the middle of nowhere. I didn't have a bathroom. I would have to travel miles to use a bathroom and things like that. But I remember one time telling someone that I wanted to learn English and get an education. We're talking about 1988, Chris. This is not long ago. And this uh, relative of mine looking at me and I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to spare me the pain of being disappointed with my life. And he said to me, why do you want to do that? This is your future. We have come to this country for generations to work in the fields, to be farm laborers. This is your future. And I refuse to believe that that was going to be my future. Now, don't take me wrong. It's not that I wasn't happy. I loved what I did in the fields, Chris. But I always believed that there was something else. I got to the point that I was being, I was not being challenged anymore in what I was doing. And I knew that there had to be something else ahead of me. There was a horizon. There was a light that I imagined, even though everybody else saw darkness. And I tell people, happiness doesn't come with the material things and the educations that we're given. It comes from within us. I was happy when I was picking tomatoes, you know, when I was working in the fields, as I am happy today doing the most complex brain surgery. Why? Because I find the beauty on the things that most other people find sadness and sometimes despair. Look at what I do today. You know, brain cancer, right? The most devastating disease. What do I do? I have a laboratory. You know, I invent things. I have grants. I travel around the world. I surround myself by the most amazing and brilliant people in the world that will allow us one day to find a cure for cancer. So I give my patients hope. And in return, they give me happiness and hope. That's how I work. You can't help but love the guy. No, not at all. It struck me that... um... What do they say is the happiest nation on earth? Vanuatu. Is it? I thought it was Finland. 
No, apparently it's Vanuatu. I learned that from Idiot Abroad. Okay, interesting. <laughs> they, they slide down um, the uh, the ash slopes, sort of volcanic um, uh, island, and, and they uh, they take these little boards and they surf down these sort of slopes of this scree ash mm. and just on their backsides. And that's loving life, loving life, and, and a bit like Doctor Q, you know. And, and I think there's something, there's a lesson there where he's admitting he wasn't unhappy doing what he was doing. Uh, as you heard there, his cousin said to him, this is what we do. This is our destiny. This is, you know, generations before us have come to the US, have picked the produce in order to send money back home. And he said, well, no, I want a different type of future. I want a different type of happiness. And I want to delve straight into this clip because I was still a, a little bit befuddled because that's all good and well, but how, how does, does a young man in those fields in California go on to become a leading neurosurgeon. How? <laughs> I tell people, you know, one time they asked me, you know, this was probably about 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. They asked me, how did you get into Harvard Medical School? And I didn't even hesitate. I just said, I applied. Well, that was the first thing. <laughs> but it is true. I think that it is so easy to dream, Chris. I tell people, dreams are important. Don't stop dreaming. But equally important is to execute your dreams, to work hard. And it was that simple response of me saying I applied. That also meant that by the time you applied, you had to have worked so hard and getting good grades in school and doing extraordinary things that I didn't really hesitate to think for a minute that I needed to work. When I was at UC Berkeley, I had three jobs. I was going to school full time. Before that, when I was in community college learning English from 88 to 91, I also had a job. That's when I was working on the railroad and I was a welder. Think about this, Chris. <laughs> I probably, I am probably the only board certified brain surgeon of my caliber who is also board certified in the state of California as a heavy duty welder. I'm not talking about little welding, Chris. I'm talking about railroad <laughs> type of welding. All right? So I, I probably lost my license then because I never redo it after so many years, but I was board certified. And I was, like I said, I was learning English at night, working during the day, and then I switch, you know, I would work all night and then study during the day. That's what got me to UC Berkeley. And uh, that at the time also, you have to realize the United States was going through the Reagan administration, and they were trying to figure out how will they make it right to to make sure that many immigrants would become legal. So the state of California came out with this plan. It was called the Immigration Reform of California that was going to allow people like me who were working on the fields to stay in the United States. You would have to pay a certain amount of monies, taxes, and that would give you a pathway towards permanent residency. Not citizenship, but just permanent residency allow you to work legally. So I accomplished this by the time I was at UC Berkeley. And at UC Berkeley, like I said, I kept working, dreaming, sacrificing. I remember, Chris, one time, one of my friends came to visit me at UC Berkeley, and uh, he walked into my small little apartment. I live, by the way, in the most dangerous area of Berkeley, not even in Berkeley, I live in Oakland. And okay. I remember a few times, you're talking about some of the most violent cities in the United States. Here I am walking 
from from uh, UC Berkeley home. And I'm talking about five miles away, and I'm walking, walking until I get to the dangerous area. And at least three times, I was chased by a group of thugs who wanted to take the little bit that I had. But at the time, I was very young and very fast. So I was able to, <laughs> to run faster than them. But that's how I did it. I remember. So my friend came to visit, and he realized, "Oh my God, you have no food." I mean, I was I was living with the little bit that I had. I would eat whatever I could. And I remember him taking me to the supermarket and buying me a few boxes of pasta and sauce and, you know, and some other vegetables and stuff. And I was just so grateful that people would take the time. But you know what it is, Chris? People, you know, when they see happiness, when they see hope around you, they uh, there's a certain energy to that. And people are compelled to help you. I got to tell you, I have not gotten to this place alone. There's been so many people around me, continue to be around me, giving me support, encouragement, and giving me that energy that I need to, once again, keep seeing light when mm -hmm. everybody else is darkness. So that's how I did it. You know, and at Harvard, of course, I work hard. Uh -huh. you know, and then I got into the best residency in the world, which was, as you know, UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco, in neurosurgery. I was the first Mexican to be trained they're immigrant, not just Mexican. They're talking about a poor immigrant Mexican. And I had, I tell you, there were no work hour restrictions at that time. It's difficult for people to understand what it was like to be a neurosurgery resident at the top program in the United States. And I would not go home sometimes two weeks at a time. And you're talking at this time I was married. I had my, my first two children. And I wouldn't see them for weeks at a time. I mean, that's that's really what it took. And then from there, you're talking about Johns Hopkins, all right? My first job, I, you don't get higher than Hopkins and Mayo oh. and the Mayo Clinic, all right? And here I am rising to the ranks of full professor in an accelerated manner of five years, full neurosurgeon, full professor funded by the NIH. And then just a few short years later, I get recruited to Mayo to be a Mayo professor. I carry the history of the Mayo brothers, Chris. This is a kid who came to this country undocumented as an immigrant and poor. And now I am one of the four Mayo professors that we carry the history of this extraordinary institution. So how can I not be grateful for that and be happy? Wow. I wonder what a certain Mr. Donald Trump would say about his story. Great question. Great question. I mean, he would probably point out that it's a very rare... Uh, again, I'm, I'm massively speculating what Donald would say here, but I would imagine he would say it's very rare, not every illegal... But it's immigrant. a country built on stories like this. Yes, it is. That's the American dream. It's the idea that, you know, never let your circumstances, what you're born into, stop you from dreaming and, and reaching. It's a bit cheesy and cliched, but reaching for the stars. And mm. as you heard there from Dr. Alfredo, his message very much, don't stop at dreaming. Turn that into a reality. Put in place the, what yeah, you need to do. That's, and, that's my issue. You know, you held down three jobs, for goodness sake. And there'll be a lot of people that are listening to this who's, you know, a lot of people are away from, from their home countries. A lot of people in this city and in this country whose family actually reside back in their native countries with, with, with kids back home. So a lot of people know exactly what, in a lot of ways, 
Dr. Q has gone through, the sacrifices that you make. And, you know, for him, holding down three jobs, working full time, you know, he, he told me that he sleep was, what sleep? It was four hours. It was three hours, whatever, whatever he could lay his head because he just dreamt and he wanted to ensure that he could give his loved ones, his mum and dad, his siblings, then on to his wife and children, the very best possible chance in life. And I want to play this little clip now because, as you heard at the top, his uh, the rights to his story have actually been bought by Plan B Entertainment. They are owned by none other than Brad Pitt. They are led by Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner, Oscar winners for 12 Years a Slave and Moonlight. There are currently plans for a co-production of a working title, Doctor Q, by both Plan B and the Walt Disney uh, Company. This is them approaching him? Yeah. They bought the rights back. It was actually wow. uh, Kleiner who heard the story of Dr. Q as far back as 2007, heard the story, was inspired by it, got on the phone, purchased the movie rights before a book was even written. And I wanted to find out more. I wanted to pry a little bit as to where are we at with this planned movie? It is in the works. I don't, I don't know if we have a date. I spoke to Jeremy Kleiner last week. The script is not up to their standards. I mean, remember this company, they just produced Minori, which was nominated for an Academy yeah. Award. And before that, 12 Years a Slave, Big Shorts, Elma, Moonlight, The Departed. I mean, these are major movies. So Jeremy Kleiner, Diddy Garner, who are the vice president of the company, they're extraordinarily, you know, uh, brilliant. So they want a story. They, they, Jeremy Kleiner sent me a, a, a message, uh, the day of the Academy Awards, the day of the Oscars saying, your story is almost there, but it's not up to par with what I think it deserves and it merits in the world. So I think that they are hopefully finishing this year and they may be rolling either this year or the following year. But as, as you know, this is a universal story. It mm. won't change. And I look forward, Chris, to spending as much time as you want. I think it's important, especially in our countries, in the Middle East, in other parts of the world, for people to realize that these stories are universal. Yes. It's not just my story. It's the story of many people, by the way. And that is fantastic. It's a great message. You had to run at that point. Just his story, where he is today, you know, from not speaking English in 88, from, as I say, getting the breaks. And today he is working for the Mayo Clinic, world-renowned Mayo Clinic over there in Florida. That's after a spell at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, which is revered. It's one of the very best hospitals on the planet. And there he is. And he's also featuring, incidentally, you can check this out, uh, The Surgeon's Cut produced for Netflix by BBC Studios and that profiles four groundbreaking surgeons from around the world. Their stories told on that. You can watch that. He said he was immensely proud at being approached for that and this is a man who did not let the environment with which he was born into stop him from going on to become a leading surgeon and doing exactly what he wanted to do from his life. Thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.